0: had the weirdest experience several years ago I'm thinking about a decade now I had just sat down it was a, an evening, a weekend night and I uh, had made some pancakes uh, hot pancakes and hot real maple syrup and it was on my TV tray and I was just sitting down to eat that and Cheryl was sitting there we are going to watch a movie and kids were in bed and all was right with the world There's a knock at the door and it was a brother of mine from from this fellowship. And he said, You have to come quickly. I think my mom is possessed. And I went, Really? <laughs> and I'm standing at the door, and I'm looking at my friend, and I'm looking back at my pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm thinking, is there any possibility the devil would wait just till I finish? <laughs> I went with him and we headed out to, uh, his folks place. And, and, uh, came into the room where his mom was. And, and there are a couple things I can tell you right up front. First of all, it was very hot in there. Uh, stifling hot. And I, I just remember that because I had a coat on. It was wintertime. I had to take my coat off and we, and we sat down there and dad was there with, with mom and the mom was eyes closed in kind of a, nightmare dream like state. Uh she had gone in to take a nap and had started crying. Gav went in, couldn't wake her up. And she was kind of in and out of this and it was it very, very strange. And so they called their son who then came and got me and I left my pancakes and down I <laughs> and I went. I had never experienced anything like this. Um it was truly a spiritual attack. It was obvious what was going on here and um I'm, I'm trying to think, okay, what training have I had in this? What do I, what do I do with this? How do I deal with this? And and she was in and out and they said, hey, Pastor Rick's here. And, and she kind of moaned and, and then, and then she would laugh, but it was like scary laugh. You know, I honestly was really unnerved. This was outside of my comfort zone. This was not anything I had experienced before. I had talked about spiritual warfare at church. I had taught on it. You know, I knew what the scriptures had to say. But here I am in this new environment and not knowing what to do. So I said, well, I think we should pray. And all I could think of to say was the name of Jesus. That's all I could. So I just said, Jesus, we ask you to be here. Jesus, we need your presence. We. We claim your authority. And instantly, she stopped crying. Instantly, the temperature in the room dropped probably 20 degrees. As if someone had just opened a window and a winter breeze blew in, but no windows were open. So there was a literal change in the atmosphere. And I, I sat there and, and she kind of opened her eyes and, and recognized me. She said, Pastor Rick? What are you doing in my bedroom? <laughs> I'm like your husband's here. And and we talked, and I said, "Do you remember anything?" And she said, "I just I was I couldn't wake up, and I was trying to wake up, but I felt like I was oppressed, and uh, like th- I couldn't get out of this this nightmare." And and by the way, this had been going on for hours. And she went to take a nap, like at I don't know four in the afternoon. This was now ten o'clock at night, and so. I walked away from that realizing how little I really knew. But also realizing how powerful the name of Jesus really is. And the the, the last thing that I said to her before I left was, listen, if this ever happens again, you call the name of Jesus. You just say His name. Because I know there's power in that. I don't know how to battle demons. you know. I don't know how to go head to head with the Prince of Darkness. But I know Jesus. So call his name and I left there going pancakes (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk with you all about spiritual warfare tonight and I, I think the timing is good but you need to understand something that the warfare that we engage in all of us typically is far more subtle than that in my entire ministry that's happened once um, I've, I've encountered other things. I've encountered darkness. I've encountered heaviness. I've encountered, you know, physical manifestations of the spiritual realm. But more often than not, we don't know that's what's going on. More often than not, spiritual battles are happening and we are completely oblivious. The battles that we engage in are subtle, and yet they are no less real. In this passage that I really want to walk through, Paul affirms several things that I think are completely relevant when we're thinking about this whole idea of spiritual warfare, of there being a spiritual realm. The Bible's clear about that. Angels and demons. Clear about battles that take place. You can check that out in the book of Daniel. Some amazing things where Gabriel can't even get to Daniel and Daniel's praying for three weeks. And Gabriel has to call on Michael the archangel to help him fight against the prince of Persia just to get through to Daniel. That's in the Bible. So they are very evident things like that talked about in Scripture. But Paul in in this passage is talking about physical life, things that you can expect as a follower of Jesus, but that are impacted by spiritual things. This is just the physical manifestation of what's going on spiritually, of the battle that was raging against Paul as a servant of God because Paul was doing serious damage to the enemy in the spiritual realm. And he begins to kind of unpack this for us. He's going to affirm, first of all, where we are in history. And then from there, he's going to list out some hardships. And then interestingly, he follows that by several powerful blessings. And then he ends by laying the two against each other. That is hardships and blessings kind of side by side. So I'll give you four things to think through tonight. Number one, position. Secondly, Persecution. Thirdly, power. And fourth, perspective. All right, position, persecution, power, perspective. These are the four things that we'll look at. Number one, position. Back to verse one. Working together with Him, which is amazing, by the way, that we get to work with Him, that God has called us into this. He could do it all Himself, He doesn't need us, but He invites us. He engages us. So working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, or that is, in emptiness. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. That's Isaiah 49, verse 8, and Paul now gives it relevant application. Isaiah prophesied it, Paul says, that's now. That prophecy is today, at the acceptable time I listened to you, on the day of salvation I helped you. Now is the acceptable time, now is the day of salvation. So giving cause for no offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. The position of our lives as followers of Jesus. The position of our ministry, what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation is the day of salvation. That's the time frame that we get to work in. We are privileged to be ambassadors of Christ in the age of grace. We're positioned here to bring the gospel in the age where the gospel can be most readily accepted than any other time in history. It's right now. Now Paul was on the front end of that 2,000 years ago. We're on the tail end of it here at the end of 2,000 years and, but we're still part of this thing. This, it's also called the church age. It's referred to as the age of grace. Isaiah prophesied of it. He said in Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And that's now that is this time that is this day of salvation the favorable year of the Lord you may recall Jesus launched his ministry with that quote quoting Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth and it's talked about in Luke chapter 4 Jesus opens the scroll reads from there rolls up the scroll hands it back to the attendant and sits down everybody's looking at him and Jesus says today that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing Paul is affirming what Jesus already said. Now is the day of salvation. This is it. We're in it. It has begun. Jesus inaugurated it himself. And interestingly, he left out the second half of Isaiah 61, verse 2, which reads, And the day of the vengeance of our God. So Jesus said that day is not here yet. The day of salvation is now. The day of vengeance, that's coming that's the next thing that will conclude this age it's the end of the age the time the Bible calls the tribulation or Jacob's trouble day of the Lord but right now that is not yet occurring we are in the age of grace we're in that position so when it comes to spiritual warfare that's our placement we're in a great time to be here we have the spirit of God as we'll talk about in a minute We have the grace of God. We have all of the windows open for truth to be proclaimed and received and heard right now. That is our position as ambassadors of Christ. But what does that look like? Number two, persecution. Persecution. Verse 4. He says, in much endurance. Okay, right off the bat you know there's going to be trouble. Because if you have to have endurance, this is not going to be a cakewalk. In afflictions, which is in the other word for tribulations, little tribulations, not big, but the little one. In hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Any of you taken a beating for Jesus? Okay, I rarely see someone raise a hand to a question like that. I asked when we were in the Philippines a few years ago, I asked a similar question. I said, anybody actually lose blood for following Jesus? And Pastor Harvin, who we support, raised his hand. And I was dying to find out how he lost blood in the name of Jesus. He was trying to convert his father, and his father punched him in the face. Gave him a nosebleed. So he actually lost blood, you know, just for stating the Gospel. But we read this list, and and Paul gives... What I would call a dichotomy of legitimate Christian living. It's an extreme list, but within this list and in, in the whole context of what we're reading here, there's a mixed bag of blessings and hardships. And Paul lays out all these hardships. He's honest about them. I mean, this is this is Paul's you know autobiography. This is his life. But it's also to be expected among those who are serious about following Jesus. This kind of stuff will come. And Paul lays it out there, and before it gets too discouraging, understand that within the whole context of it, as many are the curses and problems and hardships, there are more blessings. That by following Jesus, you will get more of this kind of hardship than anybody else. But, by following Jesus, you will get far more blessing than anybody else. And so it really is both. And, and, and it's, it's that we understand that. It's not to freak anybody out, but just to be prepared. Hey, you're not making an easy choice to give your life to the Lord. And especially, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the level of afflictions or hardships or persecution you get in your life as a Christian all depends on how serious you are about Jesus. The more serious you are, the more you're going to be persecuted. The more passionate you are for Christ, guaranteed you're going to get more affliction. Which is why some people sit in the back row of the church and do nothing. You know, you can can live in Jesus and and, and not take a whole lot of flack. You can take that easy route. And, And I dare say, be saved. You know, go home. Go to heaven when the time is right, when He calls. No problem there. But Paul says if you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, prepare to take some flack. And the more you desire to serve Him, the more hits you are going to take for it. And remember, those hits may be very subtle. They may not be things that you think are spiritual warfare. It might be a physical ailment, as as Jim deals with. I don't think it's just a physical ailment. Jim and I have talked about that. I think there's attack that is continual and it's a tool, a device that the enemy can use to discourage and to wear down. But there are things that happen to us all the time that we just assume, oh, well, that's just a physical problem, or oh, that guy's just being a jerk, or oh, she just doesn't understand me. And in the reality, if we could pull back the veil and see the spiritual realm, there would be a battle raging. And when we can understand that, then suddenly, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, our fight is not against flesh and blood. Rachel and I, if we're in conflict... I just say that because she's right here in the front row. But but let's say we're having some kind of conflict. If we could pull back the veil and see perhaps what's happening is the demonic realm is trying to get us into conflict so that the worship director and the senior pastor are not able to see eye to eye. And that's the kind of sensitivity I think that we are called to in spiritual warfare. Pull back the veil. If you're being hit physically, emotionally, spiritually... Then you stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lord, is something going on here that I don't understand? Is there something happening spiritually I really don't see? Paul is describing all these things and I can guarantee you every single word he uses describes something that happened as a result of his ministry. Physical reactions to spiritual attacks that are coming on Paul. Now, throughout 2 Corinthians 6, Paul shares his personal battles En route, ultimately, to his own martyrdom. For Jesus, and even for Paul's spiritual warfare, was not just a construct to be talked about in a Bible study. It was real life. It's what took place. Again, not to discourage, but to prepare. To actually encourage you all to be passionate for Jesus. Because the reality is, not only is there persecution guaranteed to come, but there is, number three, power and this is where it gets good I want to camp out here for just a little bit verse 6 he says in purity stop the first statement of power that Paul makes in this issue of battling it out spiritually is purity you want to be powerful for Jesus that's number one purity number one on his list it's in the Greek which literally means holiness, saintliness. It's living sanctified. You all in this generation have been lied to more about purity than any other generation prior that I can recall, at least in my lifetime, and I would say easily going back before my lifetime. This generation has been told that purity is unnecessary. And yeah, I'm talking about sexual purity, but I'm also talking about uh, mental purity, what you think about, what you watch, what you take in, what you consume. As a millennial in America, purity is kind of like, yeah, whatever. Because we all get it, you know. We all understand each other. We all understand the way the world works. And so Christians in this generation are living like the rest of the world. And when you look at the statistics of how Christians in their 20s right now versus people in their 20s who are not Christians, the, the lifestyle difference, no different. No different. And that's, that's unnerving. Why is that? Because purity has been set aside. But the spiritual battle has to be fought with clean weapons. You know, you, you think about the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. Gotta kind of go there. Uh, and, and think about what do they do after hacking the head off of an orc? They clean the sword. They maintain the weaponry. Those of you who are in the Navy who have had to work with these things understand that you have to the weapon needs to be clean. The gun needs to be cleaned to fire correctly the next time it's needed. And it's even more important in the spiritual realm that we live lives of purity, that we might be sharper. That we might be stronger, that we might be more forceful, more powerful to fight against these unseen things. Fighting in spiritual warfare is not about getting down and dirty with the world. It's not about looking like the world. You will never reach someone in the world by acting like the world. The reality is the more different we are in Jesus, the more attractive Jesus is. So purity is absolutely key. Proverbs 22.11 says, He who loves purity of heart, whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. I like that. The king is his friend. You want to be close to the king? You want to walk alongside Jesus? I'll tell you what, in this battle, I want to be calling out Jesus' name. I want to know that king Jesus is right here because ain't no demon going to mess with Jesus. (laughs) So as long as I know I'm right, close to Him, we're good. Purity keeps me close to the King. He says, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. And all of those together, we're talking about power. About how the spiritual battle is effectively engaged. And again, it's something that's radically different than what you would get in the world knowledge patience kindness genuine love I think there's some fruit of the spirit in there and again if you look back at 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 verse 1 he says and working together with him we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain working with him with him and what is his name his name is Emmanuel God with us because he is not just God who visited us 2,000 years ago, but God who is with us. Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah prophesied that. Matthew one twenty three. Matthew ascribes that. Tells us that the angel said, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Jesus promised in John 14.18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he's not talking about the second coming. Jesus says, I will come to you. I'm coming back to you. Right away. In fact, he says to the apostles, the world's not going to see me, but you will. You're going to know. Emmanuel, God with us, is present and is now. John 15 26, Jesus said, when the Comforter comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. In the Holy Spirit. This is the power to fight the battle. The Holy Spirit, the presence of Literally the Spirit of Christ. You know that I shared this a couple or three weeks back, but the Holy Spirit only has one name, if you can even call it a name, it's more of a designation in the Bible, and that is Comforter. Other than that, He is always listed as the Spirit of. He is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of your Father, Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Truth, and the Spirit of Holiness. These are all different Uh, descriptions of the Holy Spirit but the only name he's given is Comforter and Paul wrote to Ephesus and when he did he said Ephesians 5.19 do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation but be filled with the Spirit those of you who heard me quote that a couple Sundays ago do you remember what I said about that I have always taught that as a verse against drinking it's not it's a verse about filling it is a verse encouraging, taking in the Holy Spirit. Man, if you're going to drink in anything, drink in the Holy Spirit. He is genuine comfort. <laughs> he is comfort in the heart of the battle. You can come home at the end of the day, you can have a glass of wine and it will relax you. You can have a beer, and yeah, it will take you down a notch. Or, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can have the presence of God And along with that presence, things like knowledge and purity and patience and kindness and and genuine love, the single motivating factor in all of this power, and it's at the end there of verse 6, in genuine love. Genuine love. That's translated love unfeigned. In other words, true love. Real love. It's not hypocritical, it's authentic, it's not manipulative. It's not a love that is seeking for itself. See 1 Corinthians 13. There's the description. Which, by the way, is not just a description of love. It's a description of Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not jealous or boastful. He is not arrogant or rude. And you can go all the way down the passage that way. Well, verse 7, continuing... He says, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Now come back to that, but he says, in the word of truth, and there is great power in the word of truth. That is the very scriptures that we're holding right now. Such power in the word of truth that when you wonder why does the church in America not make the kind of headway that it has in the past, it's because the word of truth is not rightly handled. It's because the sword of the word is not being carried about. It's not wielded correctly. People don't know how to use it. You know, they look at the Bible as my son did. He was eight years old. Corey was, and he came to me and he said, "Dad, the Bible's so big. It's just so big." <laughs> i don't understand there's too much you know he needed to learn how to carry it how to hold it how to how to wield it and when you start to use it that way it, it's not so big it's magnificent it's glorious but man it's it's something that can be handled and it is a powerful powerful tool how are you going to vote in this election pray. let's just pray <laughs> yeah <laughs> What I want to do right now is those are for Hillary over here, those for Trump over here, and the rest of us will just I go on say. home. Right? <laughs> I want to give you some advice if I can, and so this may be a little side note in the teaching, but it goes right back to the word of truth. I'm not gonna tell you how to vote as much as I want to. <laughs> I want to say this. This election is not, is not about personality. Though that's what everybody thinks it's about. That's what our world is looking at. That's why Bernie Sanders was hitting it off with millennials. Because his personality connected. They looked at him and they looked at Hillary and they went, (laughs) Sanders, he's almost dead, but you know what? (laughs) I like this guy. And it's something also that my son Corey said about Bernie Sanders. He said, I disagree with about everything Bernie Sanders says, but at least I believe him. I I think he says what he really believes. He seems to have some integrity there at least, you know. This is not about personalities. Donald Trump has a personality that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Hillary Clinton has. Donald Trump has a personality that. (laughs) Trump and Hillary both have done things, said things, you know, that would turn people off. And so if it was a personality driven election, then we throw up our hands and say, what do we do? It is not about personality neither Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton are the devil I know you've heard otherwise (laughs) but they're not the devil and both of them are sinners but you know what God has used sinful people in the past So again, personality is not the issue. It is the principle that matters. It's the platform that matters. It's what they stand on. Because regardless of personality, once a person is elected into office, if they stand on a certain platform, they are already somewhat bound to have to follow that thing through. I want to read to you something Clark Donald wrote. Clark is one of our shepherds here. And he was writing to my my daughter out in Wisconsin about this very thing because she had posted on Facebook uncertainty about what she was even going to do. Clark wrote this, God used a stuttering murderer, Moses, to lead his people out of captivity. He used a philanderer, David, to be king. And he uses me, his child. When did we in America start abandoning the rule of law based on the commandments, or based in the commandments, that forms the very basis of our constitution and replace that, the rule of law, with the cult of personality? I call it American Idol voting. When do we start choosing our leaders based on their looks, on their sex, on their race, on their eloquence, regardless if their words are based on truth? I believe you can try to find out as much as you can about the candidate's platform and vote accordingly, not based on their personality. I mean, I actually voted for Bob Dole back in the 90s and he didn't even have a personality. (laughs) And Clark writes, why the platform? Because the people are flawed. Always are. No matter how good they might come across, the people are always flawed. Some will say or do anything to get elected, but most will not cross their supporter base on the key issues. This will guide their policy, it will guide their appointment. These appointments are critical when you think of the Supreme Court and the fact that there may be three members retiring during the next presidential term. And that will impact the future of this country for at least 35 to 40 years. So when you vote, and you need to vote, every one of you, when you go into the ballot box, if you haven't already sent in your your absentee ballot, when you do that, stop and don't think about the personality. Think about what they say they represent. What is the platform on which they stand? And vote accordingly. And I would say, vote the Bible. Why is there so much confusion and chaos in our country today? Well, back to my main point here, the word of truth is not being taught. The word of truth is not being handled. It reminds me of Viggo Mortensen. Mortensen who played Aragorn, Lord of the Rings. And when he was in New Zealand, working on the part, and even throughout filming, it was said that everywhere he went, on his days off, if he went out to eat with the guys, went to a Jack in the Box or whatever, he took his sword with him. He was seen all over New Zealand carrying his sword. People thought it was weird, but he said it was because he wanted to be so comfortable with that thing that when he was on screen, when he was being filmed, it just looked absolutely natural like this is what he had done all his life. That's how to carry the sword. That's what you do with the Bible. You get so comfortable with this thing that wherever you go, wherever you are, you can flip it open and turn to it and and you have the power of the word of truth in the power of God, he says. And then he says this, by the weapons of righteousness, he says, for the right hand and for the left. What does that mean? Think about it. Typically in warfare, especially if you're thinking in Paul's day, Roman warfare, you're going to have a sword and a shield. So your right hand is offensive. Your left hand is defensive. Paul is saying we have both. In spiritual warfare, we have the ability to go at the enemy. We also have the ability to be protected from the enemy. And then, of course, there's the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Boots, belts, breastplates, helmets, shields. The shield in the left hand and the sword in the right Unless you're left-handed, then swap the two. It works either way. (laughs) But only two in that list in Ephesians 6, only two of the implements of warfare are offensive. Everything else is defensive, except for the sword of the Spirit and prayer. Those we take at the enemy. With those we have offense, the sword of the Word that I'm holding in the right hand, and prayer, which really is I'm holding up both hands. In worship to God and in prayer. Second Corinthians 10, verse three, another great passage on spiritual warfare, says, "Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses." We are I love this verse, we are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is real battle with real casualties and real captives. And when you look at non-believers and and non-Christian friends and family members, you look at them, don't look at them as the enemy, they're not the enemy. They are captives of the enemy. And it could be a person that when you look at them, They seem so just caught up in the sin nature. They're caught up. They're captive. Love them enough to go into the battle and to fight for them. Now, after laying out for us the position we're in, the persecution we'll face, and the power, marvelously, that we'll have, Paul now puts it all into number four, perspective. Verse 8. By glory and dishonor, expect both. He says, by evil report, which means, yeah, people are going to say negative stuff about you, untrue things, unfair things, by evil report and good report. So some people are going to say good things, regarded as deceivers and yet true. And I hate that because I don't want to be seen a liar. When I teach the word of God and someone says, you're just, you're just trying to lure people. I don't want to hear that. And that is warfare. I might not think of it I might just think of it as a put down it's warfare anything that will discourage you from going forward and speaking the truth is warfare and so sometimes the enemy will just simply try to dishonor you or call you a deceiver even though you know you're telling the truth verse 9 as unknown yet well known that's so huge ever had that moment in your life I know you all have because we all do where you feel absolutely and utterly alone. And I don't mean like, oh, woe is me, self-pity. I mean, you just feel like, in the moment, no one really gets what's going on with me right now. Nobody knows. And so we feel that way, and especially when the battle's raging, but it's not true. We are seen as unknown. We may sometimes feel unknown, but Paul says, yet well known. This happened to me this week. In fact, it just happened to me last night. There was a moment last night where a thought just kind of trickled into my mind because I was trying to balance some things and think through some things and share some things and two of you know what I'm talking about. And I felt, in the moment, not with self-pity, but I just felt alone because I couldn't fully express what I was having to balance. And in the second I felt that, it's just wonderful, I went, man, I feel so alone right now. And I immediately heard, you're not. You are not alone. You are never alone. Jesus understands when nobody else does, He knows exactly how you're feeling, exactly what you're going through, and He is right there. You are not alone. But the enemy will try to make you think that you are. Paul says, As dying, yet behold, we live. Now Paul would know about that because he was on the verge of death many times. As punished, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, Yet always rejoicing. That's the weirdest thing about Christians. How can they be happy when everything's falling apart in their lives? What is wrong with you people that you sing worship songs even in the worst of times? Oh, well, we might be sorrowful. That's just the reality of life. And yet there's this constant sense of rejoicing because Jesus is here. And then he says, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things that's what real battle looks like and I think that was kind of the revelation for me in thinking about spiritual warfare maybe this passage wouldn't normally be thought of as a spiritual warfare passage and yet as I read through it from verse 1 through verse 10 that's exactly what spiritual warfare looks like on this side from the physical perspective when we don't see all the things happening in the spirit realm that's what it looks like for us here and now that's how it plays out. Now, sometimes I think it'd be a lot easier to be running across a battlefield with a big old axe hacking devil's heads off and blowing, you know, blowing up the enemy, I and mean, that'd be great, because then I could see and I could know, and this is warfare, and that's the enemy, and here's our here's our team, so we know what we're doing, and we can see clearly. You know, one of the things that was so difficult about the Vietnam War was it was unclear who the enemy was. Because they were infiltrated throughout villages and 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 among camps, and, and, and a child might be a tool of the enemy. And our guys didn't know. Spiritual warfare is like that. Sometimes the enemy will even use, unwittingly, a brother or sister in Christ to try and take you down. And they don't even realize they're being used of the enemy. Now, I, I wish it was a little more obvious, but I think... I think if we can rightly handle the word of truth, we can look at passages like this and we can begin to see the obvious things. And when things start happening like this, like Paul describes here, understand that you have amazing power to fight back against it. And where spiritual warfare is concerned, it never looks like what we think it's going to look like. It's always a different thing. You have all the training in the world. And like I said, you can be sitting there while your pancakes are getting cold wondering, what am I going to do? How do I handle this? How do I face this? What's the answer here? Do I call in an exorcist? I mean, what, what do I do, Lord? You know what you do? You turn to Revelation 5 and we'll finish there. Turn over to Revelation 5 and I'll show you. John is in this point in the Revelation. I don't have time to go into all of it, but he's in heaven. Now he's being given a revelation, but he has been caught up, and in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, John is in heaven. And everything he's seeing is from that perspective. By the way, side note, that's a key to understanding the book of Revelation, is understanding where John is. In the first three chapters, he's on earth. In chapters 4 and 5, he is in heaven. In chapters 6 through 19, he's for the most part back on earth except for a couple of moments. And, and so you just look for those things, and knowing where he is locationally helps you understand the book. Anyway, he's in heaven. And he writes in chapter 5, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, that is on the outside, and sealed up with seven seals. So he sees a scroll. And... He knows somehow, because this is revealed to him, that there's writing on the inside of the scroll, but there's also writing on the outside of the scroll, and it's sealed seven times. This is a title deed. And we know this because in the first century, this is how they would write a title deed of a house that, that had gone into foreclosure. And they would take the original title, they would seal it up, seven seals, and they'd write on the outside of it, the the terms of the foreclosure and what had happened and the person would have seven years to pay it off or they would lose the house so John sees a title deed in foreclosure I believe is the title deed to the planet title deed to earth I can go all into why but again that's not my main purpose here just understand that this is an important document that seals the fate of all mankind and he sees this Verse 2, and John writes, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? In other words, who can save the planet? Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. John writes, and I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, and this is what elders are supposed to do. (laughs) He said, stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Now, don't read any further because the rest of the description will freak you out, and I'll have to explain that. <laughs> Here's the thing the answer is always the same. In spiritual warfare the answer is The Lion of the tribe of Judah Who is also the Lamb who was slain Jesus Christ You can forget everything else I told you tonight But if you remember when it gets tough To call on the name of Jesus You will be saved Bible promises that Those who call on the name of the Lord Will be saved Romans 10.13 He absolutely is the key now, I was a kid who grew up going to Sunday school, and we learned pretty quickly that if we said Jesus, we were probably going to be right. What's the answer to this? Jesus! And it typically was, at least half the time. So we had like a 50-50 chance of getting the question right. And then we would laugh about that, and I actually remember doing youth ministry and college ministry, and how there were some of my students who would do that. I'd say, so what do you guys think the answer is? And someone would go, Jesus! You know, yeah, okay, you're right. And we'd laugh about it. I've come full circle back around to the point where I realized that Jesus is the right answer. Profoundly and absolutely. Which is why I started with the story that I did, because for me, what I learned that night more than anything else, if I know Him, if I'm under His authority, if I call on His name, He has the power to do what I don't. And so while we have all of these things that we've talked about, we have the persecutions and we have the power, and we have this whole mixed bag of, of, the, of the blessings, and the tribulations. We also have one more thing. And that is Jesus. We have Jesus. And Lord Jesus, I ask that you would continue to train us up. All of us, Lord, to be people who know how to wield this sword better than Vigo. Lord, I pray that you will make us a people who know how to pray from the depths of our heart, just with honesty and authenticity. A people of genuine love. A people of purity of people who are fully engaged in the battle because, Lord, honestly, though it's painful, that's also where the joy is. And I would ask for this group tonight, I would ask, Lord, that these would be those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, not just in Jesus at the back of the church, but godly in Christ Jesus, fighting the battle and living out their lives. Lord, for you engaging in all of these things, the spiritual warfare that rages about us. For we know that the battle is already won. And we praise your name, Lord Jesus. And we know one day you will break the seals on the scroll. You will cut things loose. And you will return to establish your authority and your kingdom again. So we look forward to that. And we say until then, arm us up, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.